0: The argument really is that as the fossil fuel, as demand for fossil fuels reaches its peak and starts down the other side of of decline, you get a whole series of feedback loops um, in in seven different areas that we focused on in this report, which are both virtuous for the rising um, supply of renewables and vicious for the falling supply of fossil fuels.
1: Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. I'm energy and climate journalist, Markham Hislop. In this episode, I'll be talking to Kingsmill Bond of Carbon Tracker about a new study, Spiraling Disruption, The Feedback Loops of the Energy Transition. Well, welcome to the interview, Kingsmill. Great, thanks, Malcolm. good to be here. Look, I'm really excited about this and I'll tell you why. Uh, in the Canadian uh, media landscape, I'm very often the boy who cries disruption. I have been arguing for years and years and years that the issue around the energy is not displacement. You don't worry about changes until you know one energy source or system has been displaced entirely. It's the disruption that matters. And that's why I, you, you put some structure around the issue of disruption, why it happens, how it happens. So I'm really excited to talk to you about that today. And why don't we start with, you know, an overview of your argument and the
0: study, please. Sure. So the argument's pretty simple. Um, and actually, as you say, it's very close to, to your observation that you get disruption at the peak and as you move from from peak to decline, um, and the argument really is that as the fossil fuel, as demand for fossil fuels reaches its peak and starts down the other side of, of decline, you get a whole series of feedback loops um, in, a, in 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 seven different areas that we focused on in this report, which are both virtuous for the rising um, supply of renewables and vicious for the falling supply of fossil fuels. And those feedback loops tend to speed up the process of change. That's the argument.
1: So I'm gonna read a a quote from the study that struck me. Uh, As complexity scholars note, once self accelerating loops dominate the behavior of a system, change runs away with itself. This is where we are today. Peak fossil fuel demand was likely 2019 and now the loops of change are gaining dominance. So if what you're saying is, if your argument holds, then we should be seeing in the 2020s, these feedback loops intensifying and change and disruption becoming more intense.
0: That's precisely it. The, the 2020s, we, we're very confident the 2020s will be a decade of, of Not just rising disruption but a rising recognition that disruption is happening Um, and the 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 two of course are linked but 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 separate and and that distinction is important Um, and uh, um but the the key point is that it's it's right now and before we go any further i think it's worthwhile just looking back a little bit i mean we've already started to see disruption as you would expect in a number of the early victims of the energy transition. So, you know, we often talk about European electricity or US coal. We talk about the car industry, um, about the, the uh, oil services industry. These are all industries, which we would see as, as having already crossed over these, um, these peaks into the era of disruption, and you see that in share prices and you see that in, in terms of what's happening in those industries.
1: I, um, a couple of months ago, I wrote a column, and anyone who's uh, listening to this hasn't read it, I, I suggest maybe you uh, go back and <clears throat> have a look. I'll put a link in, the, uh, in our uh, uh, episode uh, show notes. Basically, what I argued is that uh, this energy transition has parallels to the previous one where we saw uh, horses and steam in agriculture displaced by petroleum in the internal combustion engine. And arguing that that transition started in about the mid 1890s, and there was 20 or 25 years of laying the foundation where the technology got better and better and better and it was the 1920s where you had you know, the small tractor, as exemplified by the Fordson, became cheap, it became, you know, it, was a, it became a better tool. And then you have rapid disruption and rapid adoption during the 1920s, and then the 1930s and 1940s is almost like a, a mop-up operation. And then by 1948, you couldn't find a, a horse anywhere in Western Canada in, in a field. And it's if you look at the S-curve, I mean, whenever we talk about new technologies, we're very fond of using the, the tech adoption S-curve. The first 20, 25 years of that S-curve are flat, and then it starts to rise very quickly as, as adoption accelerates, and then it plateaus at, at the end of the top. And it seems to me that we're doing very, almost, the, we're going through the very similar process and the middle decade, the disruptive decade is the 2020s. So we've yeah, laid the I, foundation.
0: Exactly. I mean, the, the kind of the, the numbers that the people tend to put around. Um, S- curves. I mean, we, we talk in terms of like you know, um, spring, summer, autumn, winter for the um, for, for the rise of new technologies and the kind of like the spring phase that that it t- seems to take forever is when you go from from 0% to 1% and then they um, the, the, the next phase you're like one to five and then you basically go from five to 80 um and, and you know in certain aspects of the energy transition specifically electricity and transportation we're now basically in that stage of are going from five to 80 um a percent penetration of, of, of new stuff and it, it's very very exciting and there's a huge amount of growth um but it, you know at the same time you don't you shouldn't forget that the, the 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 great weakness that the incumbents face is that they are so big people often the argument that they're safe because they're big but actually they're not they're vulnerable because they're so big and that means they've got a very long way to fall um because when you've built an entire energy system based upon fossil fuels it it doesn't actually take very much for um for a a new technology a new fast-growing technology to come in and take all of that growth i mean these i guess are arguments as you know mark and that we made on on a number of occasions um in, in terms of like playing around with the massive transitions I think what we were doing in this piece was looking at, the, at the, the the self-sustaining loops which made that process even faster.
1: Well, let's talk about the first one, the volume
0: cost feedback loop. Could you explain that please? So um, it's pretty well understood as you build more solar panels. Um, so you get more expert at producing solar panels and therefore the cost goes down. As the cost goes down so demand goes up and volumes rise, and as volumes rise, so the cost continues to fall. Um, and, and it's it's very very well well understood, and and it's even got as you know a name. It's called the learning curve, um, and it, people have been able to document the the percentage rate at which costs fall for solar panels and wind turbines and batteries, and it's sort of between twenty and thirty five percent for those for those technologies for every doubling of capacity, and uh, that that. The, the, the sense of very interesting analysis done by um, a guy called Doyne Farmer at Oxford, who's a mathematician, and he's really makes the point that learning curves are incredibly sticky. So, once you get onto a learning curve, it, it tends to keep on going. And therefore, actually, what we tend to do at Carbon Track, we like play around with spreadsheets and we look at future prices and future uh, volumes of these technologies, and it, it's not very difficult, you just put the numbers into Excel. And you very very quickly get to some very large numbers and some very low prices and we would suggest that that's what's likely to continue to happen.
1: I ran across an article uh, uh, that I had it was about a law quote unquote that uh, I wasn't aware of it came out of the aviation industry decades ago but essentially that every time volume of a particular product doubles, the cost declines by I think it was ten or fifteen percent, something like that. And that seems to be the process
0: that's uh, playing out here. Uh, yeah, and it, it's not entirely surprising. It's it, because you have a situation when, when a volumes are a relatively small, it doesn't pay to focus on concentrating on one particular aspect. But as they grow larger, so you you get people who will concentrate on different areas within the value chain you get consolidation you get driving out of costs you then get companies which they see the growth coming and they bill for that growth to come um and 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 that in turn also drives costs down so it is actually very it's a very well attested as you say process and the only surprising thing is that um a lot of the incumbent analysts have, have thus far ignored it. I mean, they're beginning to understand it. But even if you look, if you look today, even at, at IEA projections of future um prices for solar and wind, you know, this is these technologies, specifically in the case of solar, where the price will be falling at 15% a year for decades for ages, and they suddenly have price falls dropping to two or three percent a year. And it's just not very credible, actually. And, and um you might say, well, I'm being conservative, but you know, in the financial services business. You don't get paid for being conservative. You pay, get paid for being right, and, and you just want to be you know want to be much closer to reality than 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 a lot of the current forecasting is. Well,
1: let's talk to the second uh, feedback loop, and that's the technology feedback loop.
0: Can you explain that, please? So the, the the technology feedback loop is that as technology as one technology grows, so it creates the conditions which make possible the development of the next technology. So uh, again, very simple example, um, as the uh, as, as solar deployment, uh, sorry, as battery deployment increases through electric vehicles, so batteries get cheaper, as batteries get cheaper, people start to use them um, in, in order to back up uh, solar, and as, as they, as they uh, are able to back up solar, the value of solar increases, and therefore solar can grow more rapidly. You need more batteries back in solar, and therefore you have more battery uh, development, which then drives them down for um, the automotive industry. And this, incidentally, um, it, it has been a, uh, a, a feature of other energy transitions. They often come in the sort of groups of new technologies materialising at the same time. And if we now look forward, we can see the same thing starting to happen um, with with with, uh, with hydrogen. So as the solar costs fall, then hydrogen costs continue to. Uh, hydrogens cost fall, electrolyzers develop and so on and so forth so it's uh, it's a good circular process.
1: The um, essay that I alluded to before about the energy transition uh, I used the example of tractors and if you look at the early tractors they were you know they were pretty crude and unreliable they broke down and they were expensive but there were a number of associated developments that came during the 1920s and into the early 30s such as rubber tires uh, imagine being out in a field plowing a field with steel tires with great big lugs on them and how uncomfortable that would be compared to having rubber tires and little things like that uh, many 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 of them over a period of uh, a decade or a decade and a half make a, a huge difference in terms of the adoption rate yeah
0: it's really key I mean, I think we we've been talking so far and in, in terms of like the virtuous cycles, I think it's also worth noting that there's a vicious cycle which takes place with incumbents as well. I don't know, Mark, if you wanted to address that separately, but just very quickly in terms of the um, the volume cost feedback loop, you've got a vicious cycle. If, for example, you're a, a conventional car manufacturer or a, or you're running a coal fired power station, and as, as volumes start to fall, and you've got a huge system, you then need to 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 um, to defray your costs uh, over over a um, over a much smaller number of uh, units and therefore your cost per unit increases. And the same thing with with technology. So as um, uh, manufacturers decide not to invest in in ICA platforms, uh, so they stop innovating in that space and patents stop coming through and people stop um, wanting to get involved in in that area. And you actually see it very, very clearly, the the number of patents in the the fossil fuel sector is already starting to drop. The number of patents in the renewable sector continue to rise exponentially.
1: Well, let's talk about the expectations feedback loop. Uh, this is uh, very interesting to me because I've, I've seen over the last two years in particular, uh, quite a change in expectations in North America. I mean, Europe, Europe has led with renewables and electric vehicles, electrification of transportation for a while, but North America is beginning to catch up. And what can you tell us about the expectations feedback loop?
0: So. I mean, precisely as you say, what happens is that as these technologies grow, so it becomes obvious that the old forecasting method is, is inappropriate, The some of the old forecasters start to lose credibility, people realise that they have an agenda of, of maintaining the status quo, and uh, as a result, people are forced, forecasters are forced to change their perspective and um, to, to race to catch up, and, and you see that very much in, in terms of the uh, for example the iea forecasts for uh, the deployment of solar um or, or for the uh, the cost of, of renewable energy technologies they would be constantly behind the curve but now increasingly in the last couple of years as a result of a lot of um pressure from external forces such as ourselves um and 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 also i guess from the embarrassment of continuously getting it wrong for 20 years they've you know they started to change and you know as they change they don't sort of go from um, you know, 10 to 11, they go, oh, Craig, we've got it completely wrong. We're going from 10 to 20. And, and that process then has a, um, has a, has a kicks off sort of virtuous spiral because as people read the research realize that actually the future is, is changing more rapidly than they realize they also can start to extrapolate so you got a kind of virtuous cycle of, of expectations as well.
1: I, I want to uh focus on a point here that I think is really important for the electrification of transportation. And that is, uh, as models change, so too do the perceptions of investors and policymakers, and this speeds up what is possible. So for instance, uh, we might say that, you know, Canada was going to phase out, uh, uh, sorry, by 2040, 100% of new vehicle sales had to be electric. Well, then we see some changes in in electric vehicles. Prices are falling, range is increasing, and policymakers look at that and go, "You know what? I think we can do that that goal by 2035." And so they change that. Well, then that that changes the the expectations around uh, for the industry and for consumers and so on. And I wouldn't be surprised if in a year or two we find the government changing it to 2030 because it can, and it, and and I think we see that those kinds of changing expectations in other technology areas as well.
0: Yeah, I think it's very true to say that um, people will, uh, will follow technological um, innovation uh, and, uh, and, and tailor their policy to meet it and that we should indeed expect that. Um, sorry, just one second. I'm gonna to have to stop for a moment. I don't know. if, shall I should I start again? Sure, Start again. So, um, <clears throat> actually, I mean, I, I to be honest, Markham, on your point, I don't have a lot to add. Really, it's a very fair point. So, right. So, just very quickly on that point, I think your your point is extremely well made, Markham. Um, p- politicians and uh, and and we in society will tend to change the way that we uh, live in in response to technological innovation. We only have to look at um, how we changed our lives as um, smartphones have become available and, and how new technologies have, have grown on the back of, of new technologies and new expectations arise as new technologies materialize. Well,
1: let's talk about the finance feedback loop. And th- this is fascinating because, you know, we're always uh, advised to follow the money. And clearly the, the money is heading into renewables and other uh, clean
0: energy, clean technologies. So the finance feedback loop is so famous that it even has a name. It's called Reflexivity and it was popularized by George Soros. um, And although of course older than than that, but the point simply is that uh, financial investors are worried about decline. So they leave declining industries. They like growth. So they reallocate capital into growth industries. And as they reallocate capital into growth industries, they grow faster because they have um, capital availability. And as they exit dying industries, so those dying industries find themselves unable to raise capital, unable to grow. And they they start um, to change their strategy. And that's precisely what we've seen. So um, the electric vehicle industry is able to raise $28 billion last year. um, And at the same time, the fossil fuel industry finds itself on the back foot and being forced to give uh, dividends back to shareholders rather than continuing Uh, to expand operations. So financial markets can have an extremely uh, powerful impact, particularly around turning points.
1: Uh, The next one is a society feedback loop. Um, Can you explain that,
0: please? So the argument very briefly is that as uh, society reads the IPCC report, hopefully doesn't read it, reads the summary of it in the newspaper, um, and people start to get more concerned about the global consequences of uh, of climate change, so they, they change the way they behave. As they change the way they uh, behave, so their neighbors are more likely to do the same. And I give you a good example: as people buy electric vehicles, so neighbor, their neighbors here on their on their forecourts and they, they want to buy one as well. It starts to become embarrassing to have, um, at least in Europe, to have you know these enormous gas-guzzling cars. Uh, people start to get worried about um, flights. What's the Swedish word for it? Fluktsham or something. Um, and uh, society changes its perceptions as to w- w- what's, uh, w- what's acceptable.
1: Let's talk about um, feedback, uh, politics feedback loop. And I find this very interesting because uh, I think it could be argued that politicians rarely lead. They will, they will get out in front of a parade uh, and we, you could argue that, um, you know, there now is a parade, the clean energy, clean technology parade, and you see politicians scrambling to get, uh, get out in front of it. Uh, how does that become a feedback loop?
0: So as the technologies improve um, and politicians realize that um, actually that there is, as we put it, gain, not pain in the renewable energy transition, there's jobs and there's uh, growth, and there's tax revenues, and there's a, a, there's a future, whilst at the same time there's only decline, and, and less capital, and less tax dollars coming out of the fossil fuel industries, they want to be in the forefront of the new opportunities, and therefore they start to embrace them. Um, and, and, and as they embrace them, so they, they uh, smooth the path, they change the uh, political environment, they make the b- policy environment easier, for renewables they seek to attract electric vehicles to their uh manufacturers to their state um they they seek to um to build more solar and wind panels batteries and of course that's now happening all over the world people are scrambling for for the growth and at the same time because the fossil fuel industry starts to feel on the back foot they've, they've got less money that they can spend on campaign donations um and and paying money to uh to their the political backers in order to uh, in order to maintain the status quo, and you see that in the oil and gas lobbying dollars in, in the United States uh, peaked in 2009, um, and, and has, has, has fallen quite consistently since then, according to Open Secrets.
1: We've only got a few minutes left, uh, uh, Kingsmail, but I want to uh, address the, the geopolitics feedback loop, the last one. And you use the example of uh, China races ahead of the US and the energy technologies of the future. The US fears losing the power and is obliged to retool for a renewable economy. And you couldn't have a more clear example of uh, President Biden's uh, climate, uh, sorry, his campaign promises, and then the legislation, the bills that have been introduced in in Congress. Uh, And he very clearly said, China is ahead of us and we are going to catch up and I will make USA, the number one clean energy, clean technology power in the world by 2030, and that, uh, assuming that the his administration is able to follow through on that, the I think the the we're just beginning to grasp what the implications of that approach, well, that strategy will be.
0: Yeah, I mean there, there are many of my American friends who think that this is actually the primary driver of the energy transition. Um, the fact that China has unquestionably overtaken the United States in terms of the uh, uh, production and deployment of all renewable energy technologies. And um, and it's just, it, it's very helpful that, and what that means is that it's not just China, it, it becomes then the client states of China. Um, and, and the fact that Chinese technology then is being, is being deployed all over the world, and, and that will lead inevitably to a very significant and rapid loss of, of American influence um, and america will very quickly end up playing second fiddle to china uh, if they didn't react so it's actually i think president biden has has um, identified an absolutely core uh, necessity for the us both to avoid falling behind china well they have already fallen behind china but to to stop falling behind china by by so much and in fact to start taking the leadership in these technologies it's also notable that um us actually beats china in terms of patents for these new technologies, and the so the, the the kind of intellectual industrial base is there, but it's been held back, and and now uh, arguably is the moment that um, the United States should be doing that. So I think one of the one of the outcomes that we hope to see from COP is a kind of new Marshall Plan, where uh, the the US and the West um, start to take this technology and uh, in- in- encourage the emerging markets to use it. Um, in, in, in order to um, in, enhance uh, their position and to restrict Chinese influence. Well, Kingsville,
1: thank you very much for this. I, I always appreciate your insights and, uh, and always learn a lot every time uh, I interview you. Uh, and I think I will close in, in saying this and that the key to this is not just, I mean, any one of these feedback loops by themselves is powerful. Combine all of them with the tremendous technological changes and other changes that are occurring. And as I often say, buckle up, the 2020s is going, they're going to be a wild ride. But thank you very much for this and uh, we'll look forward to the next interview.
0: Thank you, Malcolm, a wild ride indeed. That's the whole, the final point, I guess, which is that they will interact and intersect between each other and they drive each other on. So a, a wild ride in the 2020s, thank you.